This podcast includes graphic descriptions of sexual assault. It may not be suitable for all listeners. Okay, your Pepsi's coming. My Pepsi's coming. First of all, I know you're freaking out. Don't freak out. Just relax, okay? The man with the thick New York accent, that's Detective Joe Riccari. I want to thank you for coming mm-hmm. in, all right? He's a veteran investigator with the Palm Beach Police Department, and he's talking to a young woman who sits on a couch across from him. He's tall and broad with slick back hair, while she's small and almost swallowed by the cushions. I understand you may have information on a case that we're looking into, okay? That's the reason why I brought you here today. I'm not going to get in trouble for anything I say, right? Right now, you're just a witness. Okay, that's fine. I'm talking to you as a witness. The young woman is 19 years old, and we'll call her Erica. That's not her real name. I have no problem telling you everything I know. Okay. I'm a very cooperative person. Okay. Erica is there because Detective Riccari is investigating several reports of sexual assault. It started when a 14-year-old girl got into a fight at school. It might have otherwise gone unnoticed, except that the girl was found with $300 on her. The girl was cagey about where the money came from, but eventually she said she'd gone to a rich old guy's house in Palm Beach and given him a massage. And she says Erica brought her there. She came to me saying she needed money, da-da-da-da. I basically told her about it. She was like, "Um, you know, what do you have to do? I told her, I was like, the more you do, the more you make. That's, That's it. She walked out of there with $300. So she obviously and evidently let him do a little more. Which was give the massage. She gave him a massage and she basically let him like touch her down there. Okay. Basically. And Erica says that for every girl she brought the old man, she also made $200. So it's like, it's like a train. How many girls have you brought to him? Oh, a lot. Who else was underage? Follow him. He told me the younger the better. The younger the better. Huh? Detective Riccari and the other investigators didn't know it yet, but this case would consume their lives for years to come. Theirs, as well as the dozens of victims left in the wake. The case involving the rich old guy in Palm Beach would come to include allegations of abuse across multiple continents and several states. There could not have possibly been a more wealthy, a more powerful, or a more dangerous sexual predator. There is no other case like this. This is the longest standing human trafficking case. This all happened the way it did because of money. Money, power, and influence, no doubt about it. He certainly got off on the fear of it all and the intimidation of it all and the power in it. I think that's part of what's so hard is like, I feel like he took my power. The rich old guy in the mansion in Palm Beach? That was Jeffrey Epstein. Now to the growing firestorm surrounding multi-millionaire Jeffrey Epstein tonight, arrested and charged with sex trafficking. Agents raided the Manhattan mansion of financier Jeffrey Epstein. They say they found hundreds. The indictment says he created a vast network of recruiters to find him a constant supply of minor girls willing to engage in these... My name is Mark Remillard, and I'm a reporter with ABC News. And I've been working with a team of journalists within ABC's investigative unit to peel back the curtain on how Jeffrey Epstein largely eluded justice for decades. We look at how Epstein built a financial empire, one that provided him with access to young girls and the power to shield himself from punishment. He's paid his way out of this, and the U.S. government has allowed it. 
Jeffrey Epstein is a guy who's become extraordinarily wealthy without any clear path to that wealth. And we look at how his alleged criminal conspiracy grew over the years with the help of others. These predators are grooming children. They groomed my sister. They groomed me. It was a whole network working together to bring these girls into his home. We'll hear from victims, now women, who have waited years to find their voice and tell their stories. I refuse to let this man win in death. I will not stop fighting and I will not be silenced anymore. If you're a victim of sexual abuse, your voice should be heard, period. From ABC News, this is Truth and Lies, Jeffrey Epstein. Chapter 1, Palm Beach Predator. But uh, I'm going to cross the bridge, so here we go. This is the bridge that takes you from West Palm Beach to Palm Beach. There's a Ferrari right there, coming the opposite way of the bridge. I'm in a car driving to Palm Beach Island an uber-wealthy enclave just off the mainland Florida coast of West Palm Beach. The fact that people have money here is, well, obvious. All the streets in this area are at least on the Monopoly board. Uh, There was Park Avenue, uh, Atlantic Avenue. To understand what happened in Palm Beach and what happened with Jeffrey Epstein, you first have to understand Palm Beach. In Palm Beach... Perception is really everything. There's a certain lifestyle down here. Palm Beach is expensive and it looks expensive. The norm there in Palm Beach, you're not a millionaire, you're a billionaire. They call it Fantasy Island. You can't get on the island for less than 2.5 million. And this is part of the life. Palm Beach is filled with mega mansions. Each one is unique. No cookie cutter tracked homes here. I mean, this place actually has a stretch of homes called Billionaire's Row. And whether it is your home, your yacht, or your bank account, in Palm Beach, size matters. The sport uh, in Palm Beach society is uh, being poser. I mean, it's, it's posing as the best you can. It's to look like you're rich, make sure that everybody knows it. That's Jose Lambiet, a former Palm Beach gossip columnist who's now a private investigator. If something happens on the island, Jose usually knows about it. Uh, Visually, Palm Beach is stunning. The architecture is very detailed. Um, You you have facades of houses with the little statues carved into the walls. And um, so it's sort of a European looking place, but with with a tropical feeling. And with the millions and the billions of dollars comes celebrity. It draws the famous to the island. You got Rush Limbaugh. Rod Stewart has a place in Palm Beach. Howard Stern, the radio guy. James Patterson has a place in Palm Beach. Bill Gates, Jimmy Buffett, and Tiger Woods all have homes here as well. But perhaps the most well-known resident at the moment, the 45th president, whose Mar-a-Lago resort caters to the world's rich and famous. Even the island's newspaper is fancy. While it's officially called the Palm Beach Daily News... Palm Beachers have another name for it. The rich call this the shiny sheet. My name is Michelle Dargan, and I was a reporter with the Palm Beach Daily News for 20 years. And how the shiny sheet name came to be makes perfect sense in Palm Beach. Michelle told that to our lead reporter for this story, ABC News senior producer James Hill. Do people call it the shiny sheet? Everybody does call the Palm Beach Daily News the shiny sheet. 
And the reason for that is because it is printed on nice paper that doesn't rub off on your hands. Is that so they don't get the ink on their tennis whites, yes. that kind of thing? <laughs> yes. I got it. Everyone wants his face in the Palm Beach Daily News. And she said, I haven't seen my picture in the shiny sheet for three weeks. What's going on? But not far on the other side of the bridge, back on the mainland, it's a whole different world. When I used to go to these galas or these house parties and I would cross the bridge back into the real world, it was a real downer. It's a cultural shock to just drive back at night to your own house. Once you cross the bridge, you know, it's a whole different world. And it's here where the 14-year-old girl whose fight at school began the police investigation of Jeffrey Epstein comes from. It was March 2005 when the young girl's stepmother walked into attorney Spencer Coven's office. I was practicing in North Palm Beach area when a, a client's family uh, came to us and talked to me and my partner, law partner at the time, about a case. Um, it was a mother uh, that came into us first and told my partner and I a story about her daughter, uh, who was 14 at the time, uh, who had gone at, uh, to a mansion out on Palm Beach. And what she told us was basically that her daughter had been paid some money uh, to go to a house on Palm Beach and perform a massage on an older man. Kuvin's first piece of advice, go to the police. One of the things we talked to the family about is you have to go to police. We have to report this. So she did that. And once she reported it to the police uh, in the town of Palm Beach, they then began their investigation. The stepmother would talk to police shortly after her meeting with Kuvin. And while the audio is muffled, you'll hear that she tells the officer about the fight at school. Hi, this is the police department. Hi, how are you? I'm good. I, I'm returning your call. I, I apologize. I don't know exactly what for. It's okay. Um, it was an incident that occurred maybe like three, three and a half weeks ago with one of my stepdaughters who got into a fight and she had over $300 on her. She'd tell the detective that her stepdaughter, who we will call Alyssa, couldn't explain where she'd gotten the cash. And it started out by saying it was paychecks, and then it went to extra Christmas money, and then it went to, I suppose, a drug deal, and then when we asked her what type of drugs, where was it, who was it with, she was a blank. Okay. When Alyssa ran out of excuses, the truth finally came out. She told her parents she'd gone to the home of an older man who lived in a mansion and said she'd been paid to give him a massage. Any information on this gentleman? We know he's got a two-story house in Palm Beach, and he's a gentleman by the age of 45. He's got money out for union that he can do whatever with money, and he basically does this with a lot of teenage girls. He basically does this with a lot of teenage girls, she says. Alyssa's stepmom tells the detective that she doesn't know who the man is, only that his name is Jeffrey. Would your stepdaughter be willing to come in to give me a state, to provide me with a statement? The very next day, the detective would talk directly with Alyssa. My time is approximately 2.54. These police tapes were released to ABC News by the Palm Beach County State Attorney's Office as part of a public records request by our lead reporter, James Hill. The tapes were redacted by police, and they can be hard to understand. Alyssa tells the detective that an older girl, who they'd later find out to be Erica, had brought her to Jeffrey's home to give him a massage. She says he came into the room wearing only a towel, and he told her to take her clothes off. Jeffrey, meanwhile, removes his towel and lays on the table face down. 
He tells her to get on top of him. You said that you straddled him. What do you mean by that? What Alyssa describes next, Palm Beach police detectives would hear from more than a dozen other girls, all of whom would tell them shocking and strikingly similar stories from their visits to Jeffrey Epstein's home. Were you clothed? Yeah, I was like clothed and then he tried to like touch me, like tried to like tear off my shirt. I told him, don't touch me. And he said, why? And I was like, because I don't, I don't like this. One of the girls they would speak to was then 17-year-old Michelle Licata, who was 16 when she was brought over to Epstein's home. took off his towel, and then he, like, he was in my bed. Today, Michelle is 31 years old, and she says before she met Jeffrey Epstein, she was a happy teenager. In high school, I was a person that knew everybody. I was friends with anyone and everyone. She grew up in Florida with six siblings. Things were always pretty hectic around the house. We were going to cheerleading, football, basketball. We had a fun childhood. There was never a dull moment. She was a good student and had a busy social life. I had probably a handful of friends that I hung out with all the time. Uh, We went to pool parties together. We hung out at each other's houses. Um, We told our deepest, darkest secrets to one another. And one of her close friends was a girl who she went to middle and high school with. She was right next to me every, every class we had together. And it was one day in class that this friend passed Michelle a note. It asked if I wanted to make some money for the holidays because Christmas was right around the corner. I was like, it would be really cool to buy something for everybody. So I told her, yeah, I would um, I would love to make some extra money for Christmas. The girl told Michelle about a gig where all she had to do was give a massage to a guy in Palm Beach. I told her, OK, do I need to have a massage license for something like that? Um, but she said, no, this is completely fine. But if you say anything, I'll beat your ass. So I was thinking more along the lines like I would get in trouble because I didn't have a license to be a massage therapist. Michelle agreed to have her friend pick her up and go over there after one of her shifts at a nearby supermarket where she worked. As we're pulling down to Palm Beach, we're pulling into a neighborhood is when I started wondering, like, well, where are we? Why are we pulling into some someone's house rather than an industrial parkway or something. Um, It was like a really big, beautiful-looking mansion. And when we stopped in his driveway, she said she started telling me things about, okay, well, this is what's going to happen. There's going to be a guy um, that you're going to give a massage to. He's just, he's going to ask you to take your shirt and your pants off. Uh, But don't worry, you can keep your underwear and your bra on. And I just remember thinking, like, okay, well, you know, I go to the beach uh, in a bathing suit, and that shouldn't be that big of a deal. But still, like, this is becoming a little bit more scary and real and something completely different than what I thought was supposed to happen. They pull up to the man's mansion and enter through a gate. Nobody even looked at me. Nobody second guessed why there was a young two young girls walking in to the back gate there was like the guy outside doing trimming flowers i mean 
but nobody looked up. Nobody really cared that there were young girls walking into the back of this old man's mansion. She says her friend leaned in and whispered. She said, if anybody asks if you're over the age of 18, just go ahead and go with it. And I was like, are they going to (laughs) ask? And she's like, I don't know. I don't think so. But in case they do. Just say yes. Michelle tells police that an assistant came to her and said that the man was ready. The woman brought her upstairs and told her. This is what's going to happen. Jeffrey's going to be in there. Uh, Just go in there. There's lotions on the countertop. Um, He's on the phone. Just don't worry about it. Just do what he asks. Just do what he asks. Michelle enters the room and says Epstein was already on the massage table. I didn't know his name, didn't know what he looked like, didn't know anything about this person. He was on the phone. He was laying on his uh, stomach on a table. There was a little vanity kind of table next to him. The room was colder. It was kind of dim. And with that, she says the assistant set a timer and left Michelle alone to begin the massage. I I was starting to get really nervous and my heart was starting to race. And like that feeling you get where you know something bad is about to happen. We're in the room. He's on the phone. He's got a towel on covering his butt and um, he's naked. I assumed underneath the towel in the beginning. And then he was on the phone for a good long time. They, you know, they turned on that timer when I got in there. And so I was like, okay, you know, this is comforting. (laughs) I don't have to talk to this person. He's just going to be lying just like this. He wants me to massage his feet. Not a big deal. Um, Until it became a big deal. Here's Michelle from her interview with police one year after her visit to Epstein's. And as a warning, the language here is graphic. And then he would grab my side and he was backing himself off. Michelle told the detective that she saw Epstein masturbating as he began to touch her. He touched her breasts, then his hand moved down to her underwear. Michelle said he began molesting her. She remembers looking at the timer, praying it would ring. I don't know how long it's been, but if that little timer could just ring, it would be wonderful because I'm assuming that's when all of this nightmare is going to be over with. He went back to just putting his hand down there. And then Michelle stood there, frozen. I couldn't run. I couldn't leave. And I just didn't know how to save myself. There was nowhere to go, nowhere to turn. I was a young girl that did not want to get in trouble. I mean, honestly, I was I was terrified. To be honest, I didn't think leaving was an option. I was living second by second, hoping that I would see the other side of that door. And I didn't know who this guy was. I didn't know what he was capable of. Epstein finished and the timer finally went off. Afterwards, he handed Michelle $300 in cash, saying, there's 200 for you and 100 for your friend. When I left the room, I was really qu- quiet. I went downstairs. I, I was just like, had my head down, like looking at the ground, kind of like 
what just happened to me. I had no idea what just went on. Michelle meets her friend downstairs and says she was astonished that her friend simply shrugged off what happened to her. And she said, oh, that's not a big deal. Like, he tried that with my other friend. I was thinking, like, you knew this happened to somebody else, and you still brought me here? And I was just, I was really sad that somebody that I thought I could trust or somebody that I thought was my friend was far from it. I put my sunglasses on and I cried the whole way home and I was just thinking about I'm never going to let anybody touch me again. I don't want anybody to look at me. I don't want anybody to touch me. There was a guy that I liked and I was thinking about him and I was like, God, I, I, if anybody ever knew about this, what would I look like? I would look like a terrible person. As police continued their investigation, they were learning about more girls like Michelle, but also about more girls like her friend, young women who were being asked to bring their friends over to Epstein's home. Were you ever told to bring friends? Did he ask you to bring people or? Well, he's, he's like, yeah, if you have any friends who want to do it, you know, like if I can or whatever, because I was working two jobs at the time. So. Maybe because a lot of girls who made it all not a few hundred dollars. Some folks don't stop searching till they find the truth. If you've got a detective's eye, June's Journey is the game for you. Play as June Parker in a gripping murder mystery as you find hidden objects to help solve her sister's death. You'll hunt for clues in hundreds of beautifully illustrated scenes set in the roaring 20s. New chapters are added weekly. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices as well as on PC through Facebook games. We've got the exclusive view behind the table. Every day, right after the show, while the topics are still hot, the ladies go deeper into the moments that make the view the view. The View's Behind the Table podcast. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. The first time he asked me if I could bring him girls, that I don't know if he could tell that I was just extremely uncomfortable or if he, he didn't even care about that. He just wanted more girls. I'm not sure. This is Courtney Wilde. She's 32 now. And before she met Epstein, Courtney was also a good student who was very involved in school. Played the trumpet. I was on the cheerleading squad. So I would do cheerleading camps and stuff like that during the summers. Um, I was actually a very good student, straight A's and B's. Courtney was raised by a single mother who she says was not around much. When I was young, my parents weren't around. I was living at a friend's house. It was just a hard time in general. When Courtney was 14 years old, she started to hear about girls who were making money from a rich guy in Palm Beach. A lot of girls knew about it and a lot of girls were doing it. And it was like not a shameful thing. When it was brought to me, it wasn't like uncool to do it. I didn't have any, obviously have any income. So Courtney said yes. She would eventually become a recruiter for Epstein. But she started, like all the other girls, going over to Epstein's home to give him massages. 
And I remember just like walking down the stairs after it was all done and just being like, just feeling so disgusting and shameful, you know, just like a whole bunch of emotions wrapped in one. But, and then in the same way, you know, I had $200 that I didn't have before. It was just a tough pillow to swallow. And it was the money that kept her coming back. He would need somebody of my type who had, you know, nobody to go home to. He didn't have mom and dad at the time. It was just, you know, very isolated. The girls that, you know, myself included, we were, it was basically, I don't want to say poverty, but I mean, you know, we did not have a good good childhood it, by any means. If we did, it would, we grew up in trailer parks and, you know, single, par- single parent homes and just broken, already broken. And that's what he preyed on. There were times where she didn't have food, she didn't have clothes, and she's a 14-year-old kid who has needs. This is Brad Edwards, Courtney Wilde's attorney. From the perspective of somebody from a trailer park who's just staying at school and trying to make sure that she makes it to school every day with no real place to go home to, and if this activity that she's being made to do is being directed by this very powerful person, then it must be okay. And not only did he convince her, he convinces dozens and dozens of children of this fact. I mean, it's the whole scene that that brings them in. But it becomes a lifestyle. Because after she makes $200, why wouldn't she go back later that week and make another $200? The massages were bringing Courtney some much-needed income. But then she was told by Epstein about a way she could make even more money without having to touch him she could become a recruiter. For every girl I could bring him, he would give me $200 for them. So I agreed and I gave him my number. I felt like it was an opportunity for me to, you know, because I was so young and basically homeless and stuff like that, that I felt like it was an opportunity for me to like get on my feet, so to speak. She has more money than she's ever had. She can buy new clothes. And school just became an afterthought. In fact, After a while, if Courtney was going to school, it was mainly to recruit other girls to go to Jeffrey Epstein's house. She doesn't have parents who are really monitoring the situation, who have any supervision. She knows only other children who also don't really have parents supervising the situation. Courtney even came to understand that Epstein had preferences for the types of girls that she should bring. Definitely the younger, the better. He just wanted young white girls, you know. And there would even be times where I, when I would find a girl that was, you know, 14, 15, even 16, but looked like she was 12, that he would pay 300 for her, you know. And the next time if I brought her and he really liked her, he would, you know, the next time he would call me and say, hey, what about such and such? Um, well, if you can get her here, I'll pay 300 Like he, it was no, he made it known what he liked and what he didn't like. She came to depend on Epstein and his money. He was my source of income. By this time, I have my own apartment, um, but I'm like paying my way. I have my own stuff. So I feel like independent and confident. And I'm like kind of proud that, you know, I'm making my own money and everything else. 
basically all my time I just invested in like recu- recruiting these girls, my childhood friends, friends of friends. She is indoctrinated to believe when she's very young, 14 years old, that this is appropriate behavior and this is just what the rich and powerful do. Once you train a 14-year-old that this is okay, this behavior is okay, and she gets used to the, the money that comes with it, you've groomed her perfectly. Courtney would spend more than two years recruiting for Epstein, and looking back, she says she feels remorse for ever agreeing to bring other girls to his home. I hold such an extreme amount of guilt for doing these things, for bringing these girls. And now that I've gotten older, that I just hold so much guilt for ever having somebody do that or introducing that to somebody's life. A lot of my life has been a struggle, you know, self-medicating just to feel normal, anxiety. um, It's a lot of things that I've just bared with and still am working through and trying to get over. Palm Beach police would speak with at least 17 girls and young women during the course of their investigation, but the scope of evidence would be much larger. There is a great deal to be learned from a person's trash. Once it has been discarded and placed on the street, it's uh, considered by the law to be abandoned. This is former Palm Beach Police Chief Michael Ryder. Starting in 2005, Ryder oversaw the team that investigated Jeffrey Epstein. And he says right from the beginning, his detectives took the girls and their stories seriously and dug in. And he says that besides working to identify more victims, they were also watching their suspect. Immediately after the first victim, we began surveilling to see whether or not there were other victims so we could stop it. But surveilling Epstein's home would present challenges. Here it is, a very small, dead-end road with massive homes. And he lives at the very end. It's got a gated front. There's not much to see. Epstein's mansion is situated on a narrow, dead-end road called El Brillo Way, tucked away from the main strip of Palm Beach Island. There's not a lot of traffic on El Brillo Way at all. Epstein's house in Palm Beach doesn't stand out in any way. It's a two-story sort of Mediterranean-looking house. It's white. These rows of hedges have to be 11 feet, 12 feet tall. Uh, And they sit in front of all the homes, so it's very hard to see the front, the actual front of, of almost any of these homes. You know, it's extremely private by Palm Beach standards. So if you wanted to be to yourself, that was like the perfect place. So any car that comes down the street and somebody doesn't pull in a driveway or get out and go to the house would be questionable. So police had to get creative in order to watch Epstein's home. They even asked neighbors if they could use their homes to watch Epstein's house. They were doing old-fashioned stakeouts in unmarked cars down the street, watching who was coming and going, and, and sometimes sitting there in the middle of the night. But the other challenge in monitoring Epstein was Epstein himself. With several homes around the world and a private jet, he was hard to watch on a consistent basis. He always had a driver. Uh, we certainly surveilled his aircraft. We certainly followed his aircraft movements. Detectives even coordinated with the town so they could pull Epstein's trash and look for evidence. It's a meticulous and not fun thing to do. We would get a big table and spread everything out and look for evidence. 
Epstein's trash would provide investigators with evidence. Police reports obtained by ABC News say they recovered sex toys that were similar to the ones that victims had described from inside Jeffrey Epstein's home. There were message pads that matched the names of some of the girls police had interviewed, along with the time and date they were expected to be at his home. Police also got a window into Epstein's world. There were calls from magician David Copperfield, Victoria's secret owner and billionaire Les Wexner, real estate and publishing giant Mort Zuckerman, even Her Royal Highness Sarah, the Duchess of York, and others. Ryder knew that time was not on their side. As police began identifying more victims, he knew it was more than likely that Epstein would find out he was on their radar. A couple of weeks after the first victim, by that time, we had already contacted several other victims. So we knew that there was a likelihood that one of them could call uh, Epstein and let him know that we were basically on to him. And Ryder was right. As the investigation progressed, Ryder, Detective Riccari, and other investigators started noticing some odd things. We found uh, a private investigators uh, shooting, shooting video of the vehicle lot at the police station and police officers and detectives coming and going. It didn't take long for them to realize that the target of their investigation had no intention of just letting their work run its course. Epstein had learned he was under investigation and it appears he decided to do some investigating as well. I would see a, a familiar car or a familiar type of rental car parked down the street. Uh, and when I would, you know, or, or following me. Ryder says he received a tip that Epstein had his own investigators snooping around to find out where the police probe was headed. I was shocked that uh, there would be 24 hours surveillance on uh, detectives in a case and on me for a sitting police chief, that's pretty unusual. Uh, but, uh, you know, we would see it. I, you know, Joe Carey, who was the lead detective, would joke sometimes he would wave to them. I would just totally ignore them. But it wasn't just surveillance. Ryder says they even noticed someone had gone through the trash at the police station and at his home. And while he never caught anyone red handed, Ryder believes it was people working for Epstein. And Ryder and his detectives would also hear of incidents involving P.I.s and some of the girls that they'd been speaking to. One victim's father felt he was forced off the road in the car by a private investigator. And uh, we had one instance that a victim called us and said that somebody was posing as a police officer and trying to get them to talk. And they said they were at the Palm, Palm Beach Police Department. Could you confirm whether or not they were your officers? And they weren't. At one point, Detective Riccari reviewed phone records to find that a private investigator working for Epstein had called several girls, either just after they were interviewed by police or just before. Some of the victims Detective Riccari interviewed also told him about being contacted by people working for Epstein. Have you been recently contacted by anybody um, working for Jeff? Mm-hmm. Despite the aggressive approach by Epstein, Ryder and his team felt confident in their case. But it would take the state attorney, Barry Krischer, 
to greenlight any charges. So the relationship between a police department and the prosecutor is a very important one. Uh, I had a great relationship with him. I was the speaker at his last swearing-in ceremony uh, and knew him very well. He was a very effective state attorney. He was an elected official. Uh, He was there for more than 20 years. State attorney Barry Krischer was very highly regarded. He was known as a tough prosecutor. You know, if you're going to do the crime, you're going to do the time. In Florida, it's really the top law enforcement in the county. It's, It's above the sheriff because these guys decide what gets to trial and what doesn't, who gets charged and who doesn't. Michael Ryder had a number of conversations with Krischer as the investigation went on, keeping him in the loop on how things were progressing. He says early on, the conversations were positive. Well, after the first time I spoke with uh, the state attorney about the case, uh, he said this will be an easy case and we'll put him away for the rest of his life. But he says as time went on, things began to change. The first indicator that something had changed was that the Sort of the tone of the assistant state attorneys that we had contacted about the case was less cooperative. Despite this, his detectives continued, and after nearly a year of identifying victims and collecting evidence, police were ready to give Krischer's office the case. That part of the story was very unusual because the Palm Beach police did a thorough investigation. They spoke to countless witnesses. They did trash pulls. They staked out the place, see who is in and who is out. They had everything documented. They had videos. They had photos. It was an 11-month investigation. It was intense. They had everything they needed to paint this guy as a 20-year jailbird. In a May 2006 affidavit, Palm Beach police recommended multiple felonies against Epstein, four counts of unlawful sexual activity with a minor, and one count of lewd and lascivious molestation. This is ABC's Sonny Hostin, a former federal prosecutor who specialized in child sex crimes. The charges in and of themselves aren't rape charges, but they are significant charges because sometimes you choose to bring forth the case that is the strongest that you can prove and that will result in a lengthy prison sentence so that you take an offender who very well may be a repeat offender, a serial predator, off the street for an extended period of time. But Ryder says that Krischer was pushing back and claims that Krischer's attitude toward the case had changed dramatically. We had... uh you know, presented we thought was a fairly good case on some of the first victims and uh, that uh, uh, that it was not getting the traction that it deserved in his office, that they seemed to be disinterested in the case. You know, they wouldn't return his call. They wouldn't uh, talk to him sometimes. They put him out to pasture. Ryder thinks that's because Epstein's lawyers had been working to sow seeds of doubt about the victims. At one point during the investigation, the state attorney's office and the Palm Beach Police Department received a hand-delivered package from Epstein's lawyers. Inside were scans of MySpace profiles of some of the victims, along with letters from the attorneys challenging their credibility. Epstein's lawyers became very aggressive with the victims, digging up their alcohol use, their drug use. They had pictures of their MySpace pages. Epstein's attorneys brought that to the state attorney and said, look, hey, these girls are doing bad things. These are bad girls. 
you're not going to be able to prove your case because, you know, we have all this evidence that they're doing bad things. Those close to the investigation argue that it was a clear case of victim shaming, as the letters point to descriptions of shoplifting, underage drinking, smoking, and having sex. In addition, records show that Epstein's attorneys told police and prosecutors that Epstein simply had a passion for massages and a, quote, unequivocal reputation for being truthful. The approach, Ryder says, appeared to be working. We felt as though we were speaking to a defense attorney instead of a prosecutor. He was advocating uh, the suspect's position that, uh, the, you know, these really weren't all that serious of circumstances. The victims were untruthful. Uh, they wouldn't make good witnesses at trial. There's lots of reasons why this case shouldn't be prosecuted. It was unbelievable then, and it's more unbelievable now. Ryder became so bothered by the way Krischer's office was handling the case that he even wrote a letter to Krischer urging him to recuse himself. He saw it totally differently than virtually everybody else from the law enforcement side that was involved in it. Um, and uh, I, you know, when that happens, there's a mechanism in the law to uh, disqualify yourself from the case if you're the prosecutor. And I asked him to do that. But Ryder says he never received a response to that letter and says he couldn't convince Krischer to move forward with the charges. I called him several times uh, after uh, his office refused uh, our applications for arrest warrants. And uh, all of my calls and messages were unanswered. Instead, Krischer takes an unexpected step. He decided to present Epstein's case to a grand jury. It was an unusual move, especially in Florida. Barry Krischer decided to bring the evidence to a grand jury, which is hardly ever done. Very unusual. With the amount of evidence in a case like this, this type of robust investigation... I, I really can't make sense of it. You can charge directly without a grand jury. That is your prerogative as a state attorney. Professionally, once something like this happens, the state attorney's office should go back to the chief of police and say, okay, well, we got an, indi an indictment and this is what it is. Uh, apparently, they failed to do that. And Mike Ryder reads about it in, in the press. The Palm Beach Post had covered the story that Epstein was indicted and he had turned himself in, I believe it was Sunday night at the Palm Beach County Jail. I was stunned. Uh, we didn't hear anything after that whatsoever. You know, the fact that, that Epstein was allowed to turn himself into the jail instead of us, the Palm Beach Police Department, we felt was a big error. Because if you're an investigator, you want to have the opportunity to question the suspect. You want to have the opportunity to arrest them, not let them walk into the jail, because sometimes they confess. We didn't have that opportunity. We were not afforded that opportunity. It was Monday, July 24th, 2006, when Epstein's face appeared in the local newspapers under headlines such as Mystery Money Man Faces Soliciting Charge. The grand jury had come back with a single felony charge against Epstein, solicitation of prostitution. There was nothing said about a minor in the charge which would have been much more serious. Anyone that investigates, prosecutes, 
child sex crimes knows that this has nothing to do with prostitution. So to present that kind of case in front of a grand jury um, is abhorrent. Not only had Epstein escaped any of the tougher charges that Ryder and his detectives had been pursuing for a year, but now all those young girls suddenly weren't portrayed as victims at all. They'd been painted as prostitutes under the law. Epstein had been charged as if he were a typical John, but in reality, he'd been procuring and recruiting young girls so he could sexually abuse them. Solicitation of prostitution connotes that these young girls were somehow selling sex. And again, you know, you can't have consensual sex with a child. So it's insulting to the victims. The law labeled them as prostitutes. The laws need to change. And a child can't be willing. A child can't consent to this. This was a smart, wealthy person with a large home in Palm Beach who was able to convince these children to have sexual contact with him. Uh, That's his fault. That's not their fault. It's such a deep hurt you know, to be called those things. And even at a young age, it's, that's not okay to be, it's ne- that will never be okay to be identified as that and be okay with that. I've listened to the recording of me talking to uh, the investigators, the person that I heard in that recording needed saving. I heard like I could feel the hurt in my voice when I was listening to it and the words that I was using. Like, I was so little. I could hear how little I was and how, like, afraid. And the fact that I thought I was going to be in trouble was in my voice. Yeah, that happened. And he touched me here. It was just, like, really innocent kind of sounding and I just feel really I felt really bad for that little girl a South Florida billionaire once nominated as one of the nation's most eligible bachelors is free on bond after being arrested on prostitution charges after being charged Epstein was booked into the Palm Beach County Jail and was released a short time later on a $3,000 bond Barry Krischer did not respond to ABC News's request for comment But we've learned that how this case was handled by his office is currently under investigation by the state of Florida. The way this investigation was handled was deemed to be so unusual, so different, that it is now being investigated. And last summer, Krischer issued his sole statement on the Jeffrey Epstein case, defending the actions of his office at the time, saying that the case was brought to a grand jury and it returned the single charge. But in the statement, Krischer also points a finger at another office, the one that would later make a sweetheart deal with Epstein that spared him from a potentially lengthy prison sentence, the U.S. Attorney's Office. That twist and how we all came to know about it would change everything, and we'll get into that in later episodes. But in the meantime, Michael Ryder had seen enough. As Epstein's charge of solicitation was pending and he'd be allowed to remain out of jail during the court process, Ryder decided to write another letter, this time 
directly to the victims and their families. Ryder was blunt in saying that he thought justice had not been served by the grand jury charge, and he told them that he had decided to refer the case to the FBI. We kept investigating it all the way up till the Monday morning when we found in the newspaper that uh, Epstein was indicted in the state case and had turned himself in, uh, and we turned the case over to the FBI. From then on, the case would be in the FBI's hands. Once again, our lead reporter, James Hill. So you walk out of that that first lengthy meeting with the federal authorities, feeling how? Feeling that this was going to be resolved with a high level of confidence that the FBI and the United States attorney would treat this the way that it needed to be treated and he would be prosecuted. So we, had a, we, we were very confident. And when they heard the way it was handled in state court, mainly by reading that in the paper, uh, they, you know, they told us, of course, this is, this is not enough. For more than a year, the FBI would investigate and uncover even more victims, some who lived in other states, even other countries, some who say they had been abused many years earlier, and some who say all of this could have been prevented if someone, anyone, had just listened. If the FBI had listened to me in 1996 when I called them and gave them all the details about the perpetrators and their crimes up to that point, if they had listened at all and cared, there would have been no more victims. I gave them everything they needed to know. That's next time on Truth and Lies, Jeffrey Epstein. Truth and Lies, Jeffrey Epstein is a production of the ABC News Investigative Unit and ABC Audio, written and hosted by me, Mark Remillard, produced and edited by Kate McAuliffe. Reporting for this podcast is led by senior producer James Hill. Additional reporting by producers Pete Madden, Caitlin Fulmer, and Chris Francescani. Associate producer is Emily Rachowski. Additional production assistance by Hallie Frager, Prithvi Takei, Kate Holland, and Caroline Highland. Mixing and scoring by Evan Viola. Special thanks to Terry Lickstein, Josh Cohan, Lauren Efron, Stacia Deshishku, and Sandy Evans. Cindy Galley is our Chief of Investigative Projects, and Chris Flasto is our Senior Executive Producer. <laughs>